Philemon chapter 1, only chapter there is, part 2 in our series here, and uh, let's pray and we'll get into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, that you love us. We thank you as, as we were singing that you are Jehovah Jireh, that you are the God who provides. And Lord, I know all of us, we come into this sanctuary today with needs. We come into this sanctuary today with hurts. We come into this place today with situations that maybe have us perplexed. Some of us may be concerned about this virus and the spread and people we know that are, are sick right now. And God, we, we just want to turn our attention to you as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides and we thank you that you provided your word to us, to speak to us, to teach us, to instruct us. And God, we just want to invite you now to do that work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philemon is this amazing story of reconciliation and redemption. And it's the only one of Paul's epistles, prison epistles, that he actually writes to a person. He writes it to this man whose name is Philemon. And um, the rest of his prison epistles are written to churches. And last week, we looked at the story as a whole. If you missed that, I want to do a quick recap for you. The story is about this runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. He's from the city of Colossae. And Onesimus ran away from his master, whose name is Philemon. That's who this book is addressed to, or this letter. And Onesimus runs away to Rome. He gets himself in trouble. He gets arrested. He's put in prison. And it's there that he meets his cellmate, who ends up being the Apostle Paul himself. And it's there that he gets converted to Christ. He gets discipled by Paul there in the prison cell. And he ends up helping Paul in his prison ministry. And when it comes time for Onesimus to be released, Paul is going to send him back to Colossae, send him back to Philemon with this letter that we have in our Bibles, where he's asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as a brother. And if, and, and Paul says, and if he has wronged you in any way, charge that to my account. And it's this beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. Today we're going to zero in on and look at Onesimus himself because he's this beautiful picture of what happens to somebody when they have a true conversion to Christ. But let's read today, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 13. Follow along. As I read, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, that's Philemon's wife, Archippus, that's his son, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus 
and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, Yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. It's been said that justification is the miracle of the moment. Justification is when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you embrace Jesus by faith. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 that we're justified by faith. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the word justified means to be declared righteous. So that's how God sees us. God looks at you when you put your faith in Christ and says, you are righteous in my sight. Justification is the miracle of the moment. But sanctification, that's how God is, sets us apart. Sanctification is the process of a lifetime. And all of us right now are in that process of being sanctified. We're justified. God looks at you. He sees us in Christ. He sees us as righteous. But we know practically that's not where we're at. We're in this process of being sanctified, of being set apart, of God molding us and shaping us to make us more like Jesus. There is not a single one of us in this room or any of you watching online who has arrived spiritually. And we will not arrive until we get to heaven and we see Jesus in His glory. So sanctification is a process, but, but that being said, when somebody is converted and gives their life to Christ, some type of change should be evident. And what we see in the story of Onesimus are some of the evidences of a true conversion. And I want to point those out today. But before we do, I want to give you a little background. He's from the city of Colossae which is in Asia Minor. And as far as places go, it wasn't a bad place to live. It was on the Lycus River. It was a city of trade, so there was a lot of people coming through all the time. It was a city with a pretty good um, population base. It was a city of industry. Wool was the chief industry, but it wasn't the only industry. So there was plenty of opportunity in Colossae. But the problem with Onesimus is that he was a slave. He belonged to somebody else. He wasn't his own. But as far as masters went, he had a good one. His master's name was Philemon. We just met him. He was known as a loving man. In fact, Paul, in verse 7 of the text that we just read, said that Philemon was the type of guy who refreshed people 
everywhere that he went. He was the type of guy that built up others. He was the type of person who had a deep respect and care for others. So as a slave, we could say that Onesimus had it better than most, but he still wasn't free. And free is what he wanted to be. So when the opportunity came for him to run, run he did. And he ran far. He ran to Rome. And in order to survive the journey, he stole from his master's house. Now, Rome was the logical place for him to go because it was far, it was big, it was a big city, it was a place that would be easy to blend in, it would be easy to get lost in the crowd, and Rome was also the kind of place where there was lots to do, there was lots to explore, there was lots to experience. It was the kind of place where a newly freed man would choose to express his newfound freedom. You know, when I read the story of Onesimus, I'm reminded of the story of another one who ran. He was the prodigal son. Remember him? He comes to his father and says, dad, I want my inheritance now. Now in that culture, that was very, very disrespectful because you only would receive your inheritance when your father had died. So it was as as if he was saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you would just kick the bucket already because I want my inheritance. Well, his dad ends up giving his inheritance. He grants his wish. And we're told that that young man ran off And he went and spent his inheritance on wild living. And when his money ran out, so did his friends. And he ends up, there's a famine in the land, and he's so destitute that he ends up working for a pig farmer. He's in the pig pen. He's feeding the pigs the pig slop. And the Bible says that that's when he comes to his senses. And he realizes how foolish he's been. Now, there's a saying that says, when a man comes to the end of himself, he comes to the beginning of God. And in the pig pen, that young man came to the end of himself. And he makes a decision that he's going to return to God. He's going to return to his father. He's going to confess his sin. And when he does, he comes back and his father welcomes him with open arms. Well, like the prodigal son, Onesimus is going to come to the end of himself as well. He does in a prison cell. And that's where his life intersects with the life of the Apostle Paul. But here's the question, how did that happen? Well, I think we have a hint to this in our text. If you look at verse 23, Paul mentions, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. Now, why is that significant? If you were with us last week, you'll remember that Philemon and this man here, Epaphras, they had journeyed from Colossae to the city of Ephesus, about a hundred miles, when Paul was ministering. Paul pastored in Ephesus for three years. They journeyed to Ephesus where they heard the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They heard Paul preaching the gospel. And it was there that Epaphras and Philemon both became followers of Jesus. They returned to Colossae and they started a church in Philemon's home. 
Epaphras was the first pastor of that church. Later we read in the book of Colossians where the Colossians sent Epaphras to go visit Paul when he was now in Rome in prison. And they sent him to to come and give a report to how the church was going there. And Paul, as he's writing to the church in Colossae, he identifies Epaphras. He says, Epaphras has come with the report. And Epaphras is the one that you've learned the gospel from, that gives us the indication of Epaphras being the, the pastor there. Well, something happens and Epaphras himself ends up in prison as well. And so Paul now, as he's writing Philemon, Philemon is telling you know, him that Epaphras is here. He's a fellow prisoner with me as well. So I think it makes perfect sense to us then to, to realize or to assume that it was Epaphras who makes the introduction of Onesimus to Paul when Onesimus finds himself in prison as well. And what Onesimus finds in Paul is this man who, although he's in prison, He's the freest man that he's ever met. He's the most content. He's the most satisfied. His heart is at rest, and he comes to learn that it's all because of Jesus. And in a weird sort of coincidence, Onesimus discovers that it was Paul who actually led his master, Philemon, to the Lord. And it's there that Onesimus gives his life to Christ and he understands, begins to understand what freedom is really about. And perhaps you're here today or you're watching online and you have been running away from God. Maybe like the prodigal son, maybe like Onesimus, you have been thinking to yourself, the grass is greener on the other side. Know this. If you are running away from God right now, Jesus is running after you. But he's not running after you to punish you. He's running after you to rescue you. He's running after you because he loves you. And he wants to do a work in your life. He wants you to come to understand that life is found in him and purpose is found through him. Well, Onesimus gives his life to to Jesus, and he's discipled in the faith there from Paul. And in verse 11, we're told that he ends up being a help to Paul while he's there in prison. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that he becomes a blessing to me. It was Alan Redpath in his book, Victorious Christian Faith, that made this statement. The Christian life is the replacement of one life by another. It's the exchange of sovereignties. Self is dethroned and Jesus is enthroned. Nobody can pray thy kingdom come until he first prays my kingdom go. That's that work of transformation. Years ago, there was a gangster by the name of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was the John Gotti of his day, or the El Chapo of his day. He was a ruthless thug. And on one occasion, he, invis- he, he visited an evangelistic meeting and there showed an interest in Christ. 
And Christian leaders got really excited. They started meeting with him. And after one night talking with him about the passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, you know, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come into him and I will fellowship with him and he with me. And it was that night that this gangster Mickey Cohen ends up professing faith in Jesus. And the Christian leaders that were around him, they got all excited. But as some weeks and months went by, they started to get frustrated because there didn't seem to be any change in this guy's life. And when they finally confronted him, he says, well, I don't understand what the problem is. He says, you know, after all, there's Christian football players and Christian cowboys and Christian politicians. Why can't there be a Christian gangster, you know? And we see that, don't we? You know, you ever watch a, a music award show and somebody will get up and they'll go, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that person was a Christian. And then you see all the other things you know, going on in their life and you're like, I don't think they actually are, you know? I mean, they're involved in all of these just, just hellish things. And people think that, that they can, you know, give lip service to Jesus on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week and, and that they're good. Listen, a true conversion to Jesus Christ is something that will be noticeable. There will be a noticeable change. And I want to mark, I want to note today three marks of the conversion that we see here in the life of Onesimus. If you're taking notes, first of all, we want to note that there was a confession of his sin. And you might be saying, wait, wait a second, Pastor Rob, I don't see that anywhere. In fact, I don't see where Onesimus says anything in this passage. And you're right on that. But here's what I want you to consider. In verse 11, Paul says, as he's writing to Philemon, about Onesimus, he says, in the past, I realized that he has been unprofitable to you. I ask you, I ask you the question, how did Paul know that? Paul had never been to Colossae. He had never met Onesimus. How did he know what kind of slave he was? Onesimus, he could have been a great worker for all Paul knew. He could have been one that Philemon trusted, maybe one of his most trusted slaves, which is why he maybe gave him more responsibility, which gave him more of an opportunity to bail, to run. And no doubt Onesimus had probably been planning his escape, and when the opportunity came, he went for it. And he stole from his master and he ran off. So how would Paul know that he wasn't a very good slave at all, that he was useless? Well, I believe it's because Onesimus told him. He told him. He confessed. He told his story. He might have said something like, you know, my attitude was all wrong. I cut corners. I took advantage of Philemon's kindness. I think it's clear that Paul knew because Onesimus confessed. He told his story. And one of the marks of a person who has a true conversion to Christ, a true change, is that they're real, especially about their sin. When it comes to their sin, they quit making excuses. You know, we live in the age of excuses, don't we? We live in the age of blame shifting. 
And people love to, you know, uh, excuse or, or shift the blame for their wrongdoing. They want to blame their parents, or they want to bring their blame their upbringing, or they want to blame even their diet. There's been whole studies done on how your diet can result in violent behavior. And you know what? That might be true. That might be true. I don't know. I'm no expert on those type of things. And I'm sure a person's parents and upbringing does play a part in the people that they become. Except for this. We all have choices to make about how we're going to live and what we're going to do and the decisions that we're going to make. We all have a choice. But you know what? This whole idea of blame shifting, it isn't new, is it? It started way back in the garden. It started with Adam and Eve. Remember, you know, the first two human beings. God places them in the garden. He says, hey, I want you to enjoy this. One rule, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And what happens? We know they ate of the tree. Afterwards, their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves up. They end up hiding from God. God comes into the garden. He's looking for them. And he says, where are you, Adam? And Adam says, you know, we're, we're, you know, kind of covered up and, and we realized that we were naked. And so we were hiding and, and God's like, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? Remember what Adam said? He said, God, it was the woman. And men have been repeating that ever since, right? It was the woman that you gave me. So he's saying, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. It might even be your fault, God, because you're the one who gave her to me. That's where it started. And we have been doing that ever since. But when a person is truly converted, they're not trying to make excuses for their sin. They own it. They own it. I love in the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin says to his tiger friend Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry that I did it. And Hobbes suggests, well, maybe you should apologize to her. And Calvin ponders for a few moments and then replies, I was hoping that there was a less obvious solution. That's how we are. But you know what? When we want to restore our relationship with God, we need to remember that he has a liking for the obvious solution. And the obvious solution is confession. The obvious solution is true brokenness for our sin. It's David when he comes before God and he says, God, I have sinned and against you and you only have I sinned. And a person who is truly broken, they take ownership for their own actions. They own up to their shortcomings and their failures and their mistakes. They are prone to say, you know what? I was selfish. I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't who God wanted me to be. I wasn't caring. And, or I wasn't a good wife. And I wasn't supported. Or I was a hypocrite at church. I pretended to be something that I wasn't. But here's the good news, friends. When we confess, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sin that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And you know that phrase, that word confess, it carries the idea of to say the same as. In other words, I'm not trying to make excuses of my sin. I'm not trying to rationalize my sin. I'm not trying to call it something else. I'm calling it exactly what God calls it. I'm confessing it. I'm bringing it before Him. And this is where true conversion is first seen in, in the life of a person. Is they're willing to admit, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. I was wrong. It was my fault. I'm guilty. And when a person is broken and willing to take responsibility for their sins, God can do great things. I love how David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifice that God wants is a broken spirit. And God will not reject a heart that is broken and sorry for sin. Listen. Listen, church, God is always moving toward the heart that is broken over their sin. He's always moving toward them to restore them, to comfort them, to pick them up, to rebuild that person who is broken over their sin. So confession is the first mark of a real conversion. The second mark is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. Repentance is a change of mind as it relates to my sin. And it it, it results in a change of heart concerning my sin. That I see it the way that God does. That's the change of mind. That, that I want to turn from it. And it leads to that, that change of direction. It's, it's doing a 180. I was going in this direction and now I'm doing a, a 180 and I'm going back in this direction. I'm going this direction away from God and now I'm turning around and heading back toward God. You know what's interesting about repentance is we don't hear a lot of that today in the church. But we see it all through the Bible. John the Baptist, when he preached, he preached repentance. We're told in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached repentance in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is near. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he preaches repentance. In Acts chapter 2, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul the apostle preached repentance. In Acts chapter 26, when he's before King Agrippa, he says this, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. We see the preaching of repentance all through the New Testament. Why? Because it's so important. In coming to God, we have to be willing to turn from our sin. Because our sin is going to be that that gets in the way of our relationship with God. And so a true conversion to Christ is marked by a change in our attitude about sin, in turning from sin and turning to God. 
And the repentant attitude that we see in Onesimus is in the fact that he's willing to return. That he's willing to go back to Philemon and face the music. And there's no hint whatsoever in this story that he balks or resists this idea. There's no sense of any objection of him saying, hey, you know, I I know I've been forgiven. Why do I need to go back? Why do I need to go back and try to make this right? In fact, some Bible commentators actually believe that it was his idea. That he said to Paul, you know what, I need to go back and I need to face Philemon and I need to make things right because, you know, right now I'm still a runaway slave. And so Paul sends him back and offers to pay the debt. But here's the thing. There was no guarantee that Philemon was going to take the deal. He could have said, you know what? (laughs) Okay, I'm glad you're back, but I'm going to have you killed. Or you're going to get branded with that F for fugitive. That's what they would do. But this change, this repentance is seen in, in the fact of him being willing to go back and face the music. We see something similar in the story of Zacchaeus. Remember him? That guy in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus is cruising through Jericho and Zacchaeus, the wee little man, you know, climbs up into the tree and Jesus comes and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house today. We're going to have lunch. He was a tax collector. And tax collectors were known to be notorious thieves. They would overtax the people. They would take the profit for themselves. They were rich. They were wealthy. They were were known as being um, traitors to Rome. And so Jesus calls Zacchaeus. He goes to his house. And in that lunch meeting, something happens to Zacchaeus. His eyes are open. He ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. And this was his response. He says this to Jesus. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. There was a complete change. Complete change in his attitude and his actions. And so too, Onesimus showed that his conversion was real because he was willing to go back. His his conversion was marked by a real repentance. He left Colossae going in the wrong direction. And now he does a 180 and he's heading back in the right direction. So the conversion of Onesimus was marked by, first of all, confession, second, repentance, and the third and final mark that happens to a person who has been truly converted is they want to make a contribution. They want to be involved in the work of Christ. They want to serve. They want to help others find Jesus. They move from being self-centered to other-centered, and we definitely see that in the story of Onesimus. Again, look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son, his son in the faith, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Paul says, I know at one time he was not profitable, he wasn't useful to you, but now he has become extremely useful to both of us. 
And Paul says, so much so, I wish he could stay here and minister to me. And the word minister that he uses there means to wait on somebody and attend to their needs. Now here's what I want you to catch. Prior to coming to Christ, as a slave, Onesimus served because he had to. He served because he was required to. He waited on others because it was his duty, but now he was doing it willfully. Now he was doing it gladly. He had taken on the mind and heart of Jesus. Because Jesus said this of himself, I I haven't come to be served, but I've come to serve. That's what Jesus modeled. And we see this is happening in the life of Onesimus. And the true mark of a person who is really growing in Christ, who's really had a true encounter with Christ, is that they are becoming less self-centered and more others-centered. Their desire to see their needs met is replaced by this desire to meet the needs of others. You know, we live in this consumer mindset today that has crept into the church world where it's all about, you know, what's in it for me and what am I going to receive? But when somebody really starts to, to grow in their relationship with Christ, they, they come to realize what Jesus said is really true, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And they come to that place where they realize that, hey, I've been redeemed for a purpose, that God calls me his workmanship that I've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God wants me to step into, that he wants me to walk in. And they come to realize that what Jesus said, you know, my whole life it's been all about, I want to receive and what's in it for me. But the true blessing comes from giving, serving, being used in the life of others. And this happens to Onesimus. He discovers that, that there's joy and allowing God to use your life. And the inference from the text is actually this, that Onesimus actually stayed there with Paul in Rome a lot longer than he needed to. And so we see this marks of his conversion. Confession, repentance, a desire to make a contribution to the kingdom of God. Now, was this the end of his story? Nope. Onesimus and Philemon went on to lead even more productive lives for Christ. And many believe that Philemon, in response to Paul's expressed desire to have Onesimus back, sent him back to Paul, where he was further discipled by Paul and developed into this great man of God. And the historical evidence seems to support this because 50 years later, when Ignatius, one of the great Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote letters to some of the churches in Asia Minor. And he wrote to the church of Ephesus and praised their pastor, Onesimus. Isn't that interesting? It appears likely that Onesimus, this runaway slave, had become with the passing of years the pastor of this great church in Ephesus that Paul himself had started. We're talking total transformation. And as we close our time today, I want to make just a couple of observations. The first is this. If you're running from something right now, 
If you've been thinking the grass is greener on the other side, and maybe you haven't even left yet, you haven't, you're not running yet, but you've been toying with the idea. You've been maybe planning your escape. You've been flirting with compromise and flirting with sin. I want to beg you today to repent, to have a change of mind, to see the sin in what you're playing with, to see your, your part, how you've been wrong in, in that situation, maybe that you find yourself in. If you have been toying and thinking about running away from God, I want to encourage you, have a change of mind today, repent. Take your eyes off of, realize, hey, the grass isn't greener on the other side. And realize the God who loves you and is desiring to work in your life. You see, you don't have to end up in the pig pen. You don't have to end up in the prison. Oftentimes, people, they end up, it takes that to come to their senses, some huge wake-up call, some disaster where they lose everything. But you can avoid that by turning today. Have a change of mind that's going to lead to a change of heart, that's going to result in a change of direction today. But you say, God, I've been blaming this on everybody else, and the truth is, I just need to get right with you. That's first of all. You're that prodigal but maybe you haven't, you haven't left yet, but you've been thinking about it, or maybe you have left, Jesus is inviting you today. Come back and be received with open arms. The second thing that I want you to note that, that we see here with Onesimus is this, is that true freedom is found in surrender. It's coming to that place where we, we say, Lord, I realize that in order for your kingdom to come, my kingdom needs to go. And you're the king, not me. And I want you to be the Lord. And I want you to be the one guiding my life. And Jesus gave this promise. He says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then he said, and therefore who the son of man sets free shall be free indeed. And lastly, number three. If you're here today and maybe you just feel stifled in your walk with God. You feel like you haven't been growing I want to ask you to just do a little bit of heart examination here and ask yourself, have you been making excuses for your sin? Have you been making excuses for compromise? Have you been shifting the blame about what's going on you know, in your life to other people? And I want to encourage you today to own it, to confess it, to allow your heart to be broken today before the Lord and know this, the broken and contrite heart he will not turn away from. As you come to him today in brokenness to just say, God, you know what? I've been, I've been a fool. Or Lord, I've been, I've been thinking this and I just realized how wrong I am. Or Lord, I've been blamed. I have this bitterness going on inside of me and I'm blaming, you know, these other people for maybe what they did to me. And that's been your excuse. And it's caused you just to be stifled. You confess that. Bring that to God today and say, God, I'm giving you my heart and know this that his heart is to come toward those who are broken and to restore and to refresh and to meet them. And he wants to meet you right now in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are the God of transformation, that you are the God who 
restores, forgives. Lord, we live in a society where oftentimes our society wants to crush the broken, take advantage of the broken, discard the broken. We use labels like, oh, he's broken, she's broken. But Lord, you put a premium on broken things and broken people. And so, Lord, we want to come to you today in our brokenness to confess our sin, to confess our waywardness, to confess our our rebellion, to quit making excuses and to say, Lord, here's my heart. Take it, it's yours. That we would come today to to understand the, the freedom in surrender. Lord, I pray for each of us here that we would be people following you with all of our hearts. And just to, as we just remain right now in this attitude of prayer, I just, I just want to encourage you in the, your own private moment right now with you and God that you would just be real, that you would just talk to Him. There's something going on in your life that you need to confess that you would just tell Him. And know right now that His heart is towards you. His arms are outstretched in your direction. You're that prodigal. And He's saying, hey, welcome home. Lord, we give You our hearts today. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your restoration. We thank you for the power that you give us to walk with you. We thank you, God, for the opportunity that you give us to be involved in the work of your kingdom. Lord, we want to walk in that as individuals and as a church. In Jesus' name, let's stand together.